0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Romans. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: Y'all can take a seat.
1: Um. Welcome, my name is John Odom, I'm the pastor of this church, not the only pastor of this church, though. So if you saw my uh, my email this week, hopefully, Max, who's our associate pastor, has been officially ordained as a deacon, officially ordained as a deacon in C4SO, which I don't know if you got to see him in his deacon sash. I hope that he will share that with you at some point, Um, but congrats, Max. Uh, this Sunday as we're coming to the Scriptures, such a rich passage in Romans chapter 8. We're coming on the second week of uh, the season of Lent, which if you were here last year, we had the Reverend Dr. Esau Macaulay with us. And Esau just shared that Lent is a time that is not officially prescribed in the Bible. You do not find thou shalt observe the season of Lent in the Scriptures. But Esau shared that throughout church history, it's a time that the church has found helpful And just keeping us grounded in the reality that we are dust and to dust we will return. That though the same spirit that that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, sin is also alive within us right now and needs to be continually put to death. The season of Lent helps us remember that we need to fast just as we also need to feast. And we need to repent just as we also need to rejoice And this matches some of the natural rhythms of life that we have as just people in the world. We have personal victories and we have personal setbacks. We have reasons to celebrate and we have reasons to mourn and Lent And the whole church calendar gives us a structure for dealing with life, coping with some of these uh, realities. So in Anglican world, every Sunday we actually have four scriptures, four texts assigned to us. And we try to work them in as as best as we can. One of them was the psalm, Psalm 16, that we read a few minutes ago. The boundary lines have fallen for me in good places. Another one of the scriptures assigned for today is from Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham, who's like the father of Israel, who's, uh, you know, received this child of promise, Isaac. He and his wife were old people when God fulfilled this promise and caused them to be fruitful and to have Isaac. And after Isaac comes on the scene, after a lot of waiting and hoping, God tells Abraham to do the last thing he would ever wish to do or expect God to do, to tell him to do. He's told to surrender everything to God, even his son Isaac. As uh, Abraham brings his son and lays him on the altar, preparing to sacrifice him, as was kind of the custom of other gods of the ancient Near East, like Molech, who would call for actual child sacrifice. Abraham's just getting to know God. He surrendered the thing most precious to him and preparing to leave it on the altar. The scripture says, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And God was bringing him to a place of familiarity. He's like, oh, maybe God is like all of these other deities in this world that he had known. And God separates himself, says, I would never ask you to do that. And he provides a ram as a substitute so that his child would not be sacrificed. And it foreshadowed in like a prototypical kind of way the gospel that would be fully announced in Jesus How in self-giving love, Jesus would lay down his life as the the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. The gospel reading assigned today is from Mark chapter 8. And Mark is 16 chapters, and Mark chapter 8 is like the hinge of that whole gospel where Peter has announced that Jesus is, is the Messiah, God's anointed one chosen to rescue the world. And then immediately after, Jesus announces he's on his way to die in Jerusalem. And not only that, he tells the people who would be his apprentices, his students, that you need to be prepared to follow me in the same way that I'm going to Jerusalem, carrying my cross to my death. You need to be prepared for the very same thing. He called the crowd and the disciples together and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, the thing that's odd or perhaps even troubling about this passage is, uh, think about it from the perspective of the disciples, who though Jesus has told them what's about to go down in Jerusalem, don't really get it. We know how the cross would become an icon of beauty and redemption, but the cross was a sign of capital punishment of social shame, of the end of a story for a person. And Jesus tells the disciples, take up your cross and follow me. It's not all that different from saying, take up your guillotine and follow me, or march your way toward the firing squad with me. Now, thinking about these two passages, Genesis 22 and Mark chapter 8, if you did not otherwise know the character of God... If you did not know like the whole witness of the God we meet in all of the Scriptures, would not these passages feel odd? Would not they feel even a tad disturbing or confusing at the least? Abraham is instructed to put to death the thing that is most precious to him in the world, his son, and then Jesus instructs his followers to be ready to let the thing that they love the most, their very lives, die for His sake, and for the sake of the gospel. But what's at first confusing, or at least to those who are new in hearing it may feel disturbing or even foolish, is in reality, the wisdom of God that subverts our logic and leads to flourishing. A life with God invites total surrender and absolute trust. Life with God invites total surrender and absolute trust. Total surrender means that I hold everything in my life with open hands. Pick a category, my wealth, my resources, my friendships, my children, my very life. Everything I hold, I hold with open hands. I may still hold it, but it's His for the taking at any point. Uh, My wife is named Emily, and when Emily and I were newlyweds, we moved to Tegucigalpa, Honduras for about a year, a little over a year as missionaries. Great place to learn how to be married, Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Um, there was a, a political coup while we were there, so the military exiled the president in the middle of the night, and the airport shut down. Very exciting, uh, but a great way to learn how to be married in that context. And I was in a season of, of depression, had been for probably four or five years, to tell you the truth, and Honduras was in some ways emotionally the low point. And so we come back in, uh, in the fall of, of uh, I don't remember, sometime, 2009, and uh, folks would say, John, do you guys think you'll do international missions again? And my answer was, no, <laughs> confidently, no, we will not do that. Emily Odom, glorious in all of her ways, you know, abundant in wisdom, uh, her answer was something like, John, we can't say that. Like, it's, not, it's not good to say. And she would say things. She would say things like, "Well, if it were up to us, we don't think that we're called to international missions. But if God said go, of course we would do that." I'm like, "Man, she's good. That was good. That was a good answer." <laughs> Emily's answer reflected a posture of surrender, of of holding her own life in open hands. And here I am, like a dummy, just like, "No, don't want to do it." But this idea of total surrender is paired simultaneously with absolute trust, that in surrendering all I am and all I have to God, He's not ultimately going to pull the rug out from underneath me. Absolute trust means that I am safe to surrender because God wills or intends my good. It is safe to surrender one's life, one's whole being to God, because God intends what is best for me. And this idea of willing the good of another is ultimately a definition of what love is. Love is not a mere romantic feeling or infatuation or attraction. To love is to will the good of another. This is what Abraham discovered in surrendering Isaac, that God willed the good and the flourishing of this family. And this is what the disciples found to be true in Jesus' unconditional surrender to the Father. And that Jesus, not holding back his own life, but surrendering it even unto death, was vindicated and validated in trusting God, who by the Spirit gloriously raised him to life. That even death didn't make him crazy for trusting and surrendering everything to the Father, he was vindicated. And these concepts of absolute trust and total surrender are ones that we never graduate from in our life with God. It's not like that those are operative just when you're in the fifth grade at Falls Creek and you raise your hand at the altar call, or in my case, Turner Falls, Oklahoma. These are realities that we never graduate from in our life with God, and they will always at times feel foolish. They will always run counter to a world that is dominated by self-seeking, confidence-betraying, disappointing people. In our experience of being a person, many of us never feel that liberation to surrender ourselves because who on earth could we trust enough? What this produces in us, this unwillingness to surrender... What this produces in us is is a way of relating to the world that's characterized by greed. Even our love is a greedy love. It can be a possessive love. We're clinging and scrapping and hoarding and dominating and obsessing. Over every aspect of our lives, our possessions, our friendships, our social status, our children, our self-advancement, if we love, we love with a greedy love. We love with a kind of fearful and clinging love. And we're greedy and we're fearful because we are afraid of loss. And we're afraid of loss because we don't trust that anyone out there, especially anyone with the power to change things, ultimately wills our good like we do for ourselves i have been at my absolute worst as a parent and as a pastor As a parent, as a friend, as a spouse, and just as a human being, when instead of living with this kind of open-handed trust and surrender, I have instead white-knuckled my way through situations, greedily and fearfully manipulating toward my own ends rather than with open hands putting forth my best effort, making requests of others as needed, and leaving the results to the providence of a God who wills my good. And this is a very anxious way to live. Uh, A number of years ago, my friend TJ Sprague, who's a part of our church, just rolled off our vestry, sent me this quote by Dallas Willard on effectively decision-making. And I want to share this quote with you. I've gone to it back in my texts with TJ dozens and dozens of times. I've sent it to probably a number of you. And I want you to appreciate the open-handed non-anxiety, the non-anxiousness of this quote. Willard, talking about a framework for how do you make decisions, how do you navigate a complex world, says simply, do your best work. Think your best thoughts. Get all the wisdom you can from others. Make the best decisions you can. And then, in peace, Placing your ultimate confidence in God, abandon outcomes to Him. And I've encountered very few times in my life people who live with this kind of calm confidence and non-anxiety. Bishop Todd Hunter is one of those people, and I read this and I think, that's the kind of person I want to be. Do your best work, think your best thoughts, get all the wisdom you can from others, make the best decisions you can, and then in peace placing your ultimate confidence in God, abandon outcomes to Him. As we transition to this passage in Romans chapter 8, um, I, I love Romans chapter 8. It's very rich. Uh, lots of good quotable stuff in there. It reminds me of when I was growing up in the Assemblies of God, we did this thing called Junior Bible Quiz, which was like sword drill meets jeopardy. And we, we memorized Romans eight thirty eight and 39, which I, I just love. Uh, As we look at this incredibly rich passage, we're being reassured in the wisdom of total surrender and absolute trust in God. And Paul in this chapter is laying out the reasons why this is not a crazy move, absolutely uh, trusting God and totally surrendering to Him. It's based on the generosity and the kindness of God in sending Jesus and in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is a, a big and beautiful and complex letter, uh, the letter to the Romans. And in the context of the letter, Paul is speaking to this combination Jew-Gentile church and showing how God had the plan from the beginning to create a new humanity, kind of out of the ashes of the old sinful divided one. And that this... this New humanity is being established on the basis of those who put their trust or confidence somehow mysteriously in what has happened in the world through Jesus of Nazareth. It's somehow what Jesus did in announcing the kingdom, inaugurating the kingdom... Dying on the cross somehow in fulfillment of the scriptures, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven and ruling at the right hand of the Father, that all this was part of God's big divine plan and somehow what happened to him has consequences for us who believe. And Paul says that trusting somehow in what Jesus has done for us, that this is somehow sufficient for us and being baptized into his divine life like Caroline this morning, That in trust and baptism, repentance and faith, God is confronting the evil that is within us, that drives this wedge between us and one another, between us and creation and between us and our Creator. He's tending to the evil that makes total surrender and absolute trust so very difficult for us. And if you were to read all the way to Romans chapter 8, it feels like Romans chapter 8 is like a crescendo of this great piece of music. You've got fireworks and cymbals going off as we get to the end of verse 39. If you have your Bible open, if you want to track along with me, verses 31 through 39 here, I want you to just look and appreciate, look at God's promises that have been extended to us in this passage. Paul describes the extravagant generosity of God. In verse 31, he says, God is for me, which is a heck of an affirmation. God is for me, so who can be against me? Verse 32 says, God gave up his son for me. If he's willing to give up his son for me, won't he graciously give me everything else? Isn't everything else lesser by comparison? God chose me. God is for me. God gave up his son for me verse 833, God chose me. If you, were, if you grew up like me as a non-athlete and know what it's like to be chosen last in dodgeball, it feels so good to be chosen. The Scriptures say that God chose us. He's not bringing charges of condemnation against us. Echoing verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 34 says that Jesus intercedes for me at the right hand of the Father. This idea of interceding is like vouching for, contending for. Maybe you've uh, gotten lucky getting a job because you had a buddy who was interceding for you. Say, no, trust me, she's awesome. We need to get her on the team. He's a great dude. We really need to give him a job. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus is interceding for you and for me. The the author of Hebrews says he lives for this purpose. So to speak, what does he get out of the bed to do in the morning? He lives to intercede for you and for me. Verse 35 says there's no difficulty in life that could stop the flow of God's love for me. As we go to verse 37, it says, no matter what happens, because God is for me, God has chosen me, there's nothing that can stop the flow of God's love toward me. I am more than a conqueror through Him, even when we die like Jesus. I'm more than a conqueror through Him. There's no way for me to lose. And if God vindicated Jesus by raising Him from the dead, won't I be vindicated too? And then it ends with this beautiful passage, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Far from a greedy or a fearful love, Paul shows the kind of confident and secure love that we can have with the Father through Christ. Now, I really wanted to go into, like, the psychological world a little bit and talk about attachment theory here. I can't do that today. I wish I could. Uh, And maybe a couple more years down the road, I'll talk about my own story on those kind of things. Not today. But Paul is saying that total surrender... And absolute trust on our part are matched with God's overflowing provision and his enduring hope that he offers on God's part. That he doesn't leave us out on like a lurch on our own, but he gives us a secure place to stand. That in surrendering every part of our life to God, we find that he's good to us and doesn't abuse the confidence that we've placed in him. But it's one thing to be told that God is trustworthy. And therefore, I can surrender my whole life to Him. And it's another thing altogether to actually surrender one's whole life to God. Surrender those things that you feel most inclined to be white-knuckled about, to to hold on to tightly. This is another thing altogether. Lots of us are kind of like the CCM songwriter from the 90s who said, Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. I beat my head against so many walls. You see, it's not just a lack of faith or trust that impedes our ability to place our ultimate confidence in God and to surrender to God and live with this kind of non anxious presence that Willard embodied in that quote from earlier. It's not just a lack of faith or a lack of trust. It's also the reality that to opt for trust in an untrustworthy world, we have to do the very, very difficult work of carving new neural pathways to help us live into that new reality. So in the same way that, you know, let's say you're gonna drive to mom and dad's house and you always go the exact same way. You don't even have to think about it. Or you've had the experience of driving somewhere before and you're like, Oh my goodness! How did I get here? It happens for me that I find my—I've been at a stoplight and I find that I'm driving and I'm like, I don't even remember the light turning green, and I often wonder, like, was it green? (laughs) In a similar way, we have these like ruts in our brain that, like, they're they're actual realities. Like ways of thinking that we always take. We always go right. We always go right. We always go right. And if we want to live into a new reality, it's a kind of rehabituation of our brains that has to happen. We have to carve new neural pathways to change our instincts that instead of going this way, we're going to go that way. Instead of believing this lie, we're going to believe this truth instead. And that is really difficult work. Force of will alone is, is not enough to do it, at least in, in a one time situation. Uh, the John Paul II Center for Healing says that there are seven core desires of the human heart. We're going to begin to think about neural pathways and how to rewire them. Seven core desires of the human heart. One of those core desires that every person on earth has is we all desire to be heard and understood. We all have a core desire to be affirmed and to be shown that we are good. We have a core desire to be blessed, for someone to extend unconditional love to us. We have a core need and desire to be safe, to be physically safe, emotionally safe, relationally safe. We can be at ease. We have a core desire to be touched, to be given healthy, appropriate touch, signs of affirmation and love, and comfort. And we have a core desire to be chosen and to be included. We want to be a part of the group. These are realities that every one of us feel. Well, these core desires, which are often disappointed, can create in us core wounds. I'm going to deal tenderly here, because these are going to be things that every one of us relate to in one way or another, some more deeply than others. These core wounds that when these core desires, or need for them are thwarted, can create very, make it very, very difficult for us to trust, not only other people, but ultimately making trust and surrender to God all the more difficult. We have a core wound of abandonment, this feeling, we have this feeling in the world that I am all alone, nobody understands me, I'm the only one who's going to look out for me. We have a core wound of shame. This feeling and thinking about our person that when it really comes down to it, I am bad. I'm dirty. And the things that have happened are my fault. Many of us have a core wound of fear. We think if I act in a meaningful way, if I were to speak up, if I were to advocate, if I were to confront, bad things are going to happen. Therefore, I stay cloistered within myself. We have a wound of powerlessness. This feeling, I don't know what to do. I don't have the ability to change. I'm stuck. and I'm stuck forever. And we also have a wound of rejection. It could have been from someone on the elementary school playground. It could have been from... A parent could have been from any number of sources, but this wound has, has, has gotten deep in our hearts. In the quiet of our own hearts, we believe ourselves to be unlovable, that we're not wanted, that people wouldn't miss us if we were gone. That I'm not loved, I have no value. Another core wound that many of us feel is at times hopelessness. Things are the way they are, and they're never going to change so why would I hope they would? And then finally, this wound of confusion. It's like, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know how to make sense of my life and my world. Well, what do we do when we're made aware that these or other core wounds are operative in our lives And these are the things that are impeding our ability to practice total surrender and absolute trust in our life with God. What do we do when we realize that these things are keeping us from receiving God's abundant provision and overflowing kindness to us that could give us the kind of enduring hope to make sense of and navigate a difficult and a complex world? What do we do when these wounds make it difficult for us to trust and surrender in love? Well, we're invited to apply the balm of the gospel to heal and tend those wounds and to help reroute those neural pathways from falsehood toward truth through renunciations and through affirmations. Renunciations and through affirmations. A a renunciation is a formal announcement that uh, someone no longer owns, supports, believes in, or has a connection with something. So, Please forgive me, I don't mean to uh, insult any of you, but I'm not remotely interested in the royal family, personally. I understand that one of them renounced their hereditary title. Which one was it? Harry, You had that ready? Okay, thank you. <laughs> so Harry renounced his hereditary title. If you go to the story of the prodigal son, no, that's not a good example. Someone could renounce their inheritance... Say, oh, actually, I I heard an amazing story about this when I was in Lebanon last year. I was with um, this couple who had immigrated. They'd fled as refugees from Syria into Lebanon. Her family was one of the largest financial backers of a terrorist organization that you know, that you've heard of. And they miraculously became believers, and God dramatically changed their lives. And they renounced their family inheritance, they formally cut ties as part of their becoming disciples of Jesus. And they're moving every three, four, five months because there's a hit out for them. They're picking up their cross and following Jesus. That's a renunciation. You can renounce you know, your political affiliation. I renounce. I'm no longer part of X party. I'm now part of Y party. And I generally have neither, no, I have confidence in neither of them. But this is a renunciation. An affirmation, in the sense that I'm using it, is, is a statement about what one does own, what one does support, what one does believe in or connect with. In pronouncing, renunciations and affirmations is, is uh, not only a really powerful way to reroute your brain, a conversation for another time is incredibly powerful spiritual consequences breaking ties, severing lies, and grounding ourselves in the truth. So when we're aware that we're believing falsehoods or operating out of our woundedness in these core ways, what we're invited to do is to name the falsehood that we are rejecting and affirm the truth that we need to replace it with. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some prayers on different themes And some of you will really resonate with these. And so as I name a theme, maybe just place a hand on your heart. And as I read these words, throw your amen in with me if you need to to opt in on this one for yourself. So thinking about that core wound of rejection, if that's you. You could pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I am unloved and unlovable. I renounce the lie that I am not wanted, not desired, and not good enough. And in Jesus' name, I announce the truth that by virtue of my baptism, I am a beloved son or daughter of the Father. I announce the truth that He loves me so much that Jesus gave His life for me, And that there is no greater love possible. I announce the truth that the love of God has been poured out into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And I announce the truth that I am loved and valued, wanted and desired. And that I am precious in the Father's eyes. Amen? Thinking about this wound of abandonment. If you already know, that's me. Just put your hand on your heart. And make this your prayer. Join me with your amen. Thinking of abandonment. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I am alone and that no one understands me or cares for me. I renounce the lie that I am unprotected and that God has abandoned me. And in Jesus' name, I announce the truth that Jesus himself promised me I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And I announce the truth that I am connected and understood and deeply cared for. I announce the truth in Holy Communion that I am united with Christ and the communion of saints. They are always with me, and so I am never alone. Amen? Those of us who struggle with a core wound of fear or despair, just... Nothing good is ever going to happen. Maybe just put your hand on your heart and and affirm this with me. Praying in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that if I trust, I will be hurt, disappointed, or die. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce all fear, anxiety, mistrust, and distrust I renounce the lie that I am not safe and not protected, and I announce the truth that God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, and my protector. I announce the truth that God's perfect love casts out all fear, and I announce the truth that I am safe and secure. Amen? We'll do one more for today. Those of us who struggle with shame your hand on your heart. Just affirm this with me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I am bad, dirty, ugly, stupid, worthless, or perverted. And in Jesus' name, I announce the truth that Jesus died for my sins and that I am forgiven, washed, cleansed, justified, and accepted. I announce the truth that Jesus did not come to condemn me, but to save me. And I announce the truth that I am forgiven and I am set free. I announce the truth that I am pure and worthy, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Amen? These truths are the inheritance of all who trust and surrender their lives to Jesus. And it's part of God's overflowing provision and our enduring hope. And so I want to invite you to consider today as we come to the table, and that's a right time, to, to confess where we've believed falsehoods and we've enabled strongholds to be developed in our lives. I want you to consider where are there lies from the enemy that you've been agreeing with, that you've been accepting? Where are those lies festered and turned into something that's like its own center of gravity in your heart, a stronghold within your heart? And how is the the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, inviting you to renounce those today and to announce the truth of what the Father speaks over you in your baptism, that you are His son or His daughter that He loves, He is pleased with you, and He will never abandon you? What are the lies that you need to renounce? What are the truths that you need to affirm and build your life on? I want invite you today, friends, to invite the Holy Spirit in this most practical of ways. So we pray in a moment, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Let the kingdom of God be established in your heart, driving out falsehood and strongholds, and let the light of the Lord Jesus shine in your heart. So that trusting in his ultimate provision, trusting that he wills your good, you could with freedom and with non-anxiety surrender everything to him. Let's pray together. Say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. and Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Lord, I pray that just as the sun is shining outside, that for those of us with cloudy hearts, the brightness of your presence would drive out the dark in Jesus' name. Not only, Lord, do we renounce lies, we renounce the author of lies and the enemy of our souls. And we invite the rule and the reign and the presence and the power of God to be established in our hearts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will mightily deliver all who've believed the lies of the enemy and that you will drive from our hearts places where strongholds have developed As we come to receive from the table today, I pray that more than like me laying hands on someone, but you laying our hands on us through communion, that in receiving the bread and wine, we would be filled afresh with the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And may this Spirit drive out falsehood and establish us in the truth. God, pour out your Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by His blood. Lord, we confess that You are good and trustworthy. We believe that You will our good. So we surrender ourselves to You. We abandon outcomes to You, and our whole lives we place in Your hands. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.